Father, we come to you and approach your word uh, with somewhat of fear and trembling, because we know that if we really believe this, if we really receive this into our hearts, into our church, that it will change us, that it will change us in, in big ways. And some of us are ready for that, some of us are not, and I pray that you would approach us with meekness and with boldness, whatever we need, or would you speak to us? Lord, we also would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to remember our friends and those that we don't know in Japan who have been devastated by the earthquake this week. Father, we pray that your hand of blessing would be upon those people and upon the church there as it tries to reassemble, as it tries to not only worship again this morning, but to reach out to those in need. Father, we pray that the relief supplies that are on, the, on their way, that they would get there in a timely fashion, that those who are still without water, without power, without food, that you would uh, let those things get to them speedily. And Father, we pray for the nation as a whole, that it would be able to absorb this great catastrophe, and Father, that it would um, grow again and prosper again, and that in some way, Lord, you might use this to turn that nation's heart to you and their attention to you. Father, we pray for their uh, continued protection during the aftershocks and pray that you would be with your church and with the people of Japan this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that as we embrace this, that it will change us. This is disruptive technology. It's like the iPod when it came out in 2001. This changes everything, right? Now, this, of course, Apple uses that for every product they release. But at that point, it was a game changer. It changed the market. It changed the way people listen to music. It was disruptive technology. And if we embrace this passage, we will not be a church of the status quo. We won't be a church that we were a week ago. We'll be different. We'll be different in some slow ways, in some speedy ways, insofar as we adopt, insofar as we follow and submit to what this passage is telling us. Now, this is very important because many of you have been here a long time. Many of you have given great amount of resources, great amount of time, great amount of emotional energy because you love in town and you want this church to be healthy and you want it to prosper. And so this passage is important for us all to understand what does that look like? What does it mean for a church to thrive, to be prosperous, to be healthy? And Paul tells us here. Now, others of you are here and you're still considering, can I embrace Jesus? Can I become a Christian? And one of the most pressing, most prominent barriers that many of you have is with the institutional church. You've seen the hypocrisy. You've you've perhaps experienced it yourself. You've seen people that claim to be followers of Christ and not acting like them. Well, what this passage implies is that the church is not fully developed, that no individual church is fully mature in its submission to Jesus. So if imperfection in the church is your reason for rejecting Jesus, then there's going to be plenty of opportunity. There's going to be plenty of evidence to point to and say, I'm not going to follow Jesus because look at the church. But the passage also tells us that you can't have Jesus without his church, that you can't just have Jesus, that you have to have 
his body as well. And though it's hard to believe, looking in from the outside, that you will never reach full human flourishing, that you will never be the person that God has designed you to be without being a part of his church. Now look at the opening verses. Paul introduces this one and many language, this unity that is found in, not in sameness, but in diversity. He says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. That's fairly straightforward, except he concludes by saying, so it is with Christ. We would expect him here to say, so it is with the church. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. So it is with the church, but he doesn't say that. He says, so it is with Christ. He is pressing beyond just mere analogy. He is not saying the church is like a body. That he says the church, he is identifying Christ and his church. He is interconnecting the two. Not saying they are like, but they are. That the church is the body of Christ. The church is in permanent union with both Christ and his mission on earth. How does this mission take place? Well, it's been seen in this passage. Every part operating as they were designed to, following Jesus in ministry. The church is not simply a human institution. It's not, church is not like a body. The church is Jesus' body. And Paul was very acquainted with this. If you remember from Acts, he has this Damascus Road experience when he is Saul and he is confronted by Jesus and he has made his name. He has become prosperous by persecuting the church, by killing Christians. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul knows Paul has been confronted with the fact that when he persecutes the church, he is persecuting Jesus. There is this intimate, personal, eternal interwovenness between the church and Jesus himself. The church is the visible expression of Jesus and his mission, and these are unchanging spiritual realities. However, There's a sense, another sense, in which these realities can be had more or less experientially in the life of the church. We want to look at two primary ways that we undercut this unity and diversity, that we destroy this one and many, that we divide Jesus from his body. We do this in two ways, one by disqualifying ourselves or disqualifying others. Let's look at those in order. First of all, we have a way of living, a way of operating in the church by which we disqualify other people from full fellowship. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many, verse 14 says. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. Paul is saying, look, this is fairly basic, part, basic stuff. The body has constituent parts. And it doesn't function properly. It doesn't function with health. It doesn't thrive unless all of the body parts are healthy, unless they thrive. And one of the most destructive pathologies that a body can have is this negative self-opinion, this reproachment, whereby you take yourself out of the body. Paul says it's impossible, but we can experientially remove ourselves from the body. And we can move the church not towards greater health, but towards pathology, towards, towards illness. If the foot should say, because I am not 
You see this focus upon itself. The foot is saying, because I am not like someone else, then I will not participate. Because I don't have that type of gift. Because I am not an ear. Because I am not a finger. Because I am not an arm. I don't fit here. I don't belong here. And I'm going to disengage. Now, we've learned to make our way in different groups that we have been a part of, not just the church. In any community we've been a part of, we've learned how to adapt. We've learned how to either thrive or disengage. And I like to talk about this like the reality competitive game show, the, the best of which or best known of which is Survivor. That we have two ways of functioning within communities that we tend to, to thrive by, that we tend to protect ourselves by. One is being the survivor and one's being the cast-off. The survivor says, how do I assert myself in this community? How do I make sure my opinions are heard? How do I become important and valuable and indispensable to this community? How do I make sure this community values me? That's the survivor. And what this person does, generally speaking, is overcompensates in relationships. We try too hard. We become overbearing with our opinions, with who we are, with our personalities, because we're desperately trying to show that we've got it all together. We're desperately trying to show strength, but it comes off being aggressive. Oftentimes, these people are seen as being inflexible. These people are seen as being somewhat surly. And we would think, well, that's an offensive posture, but actually, it's not. Oftentimes, that aggressiveness That inflexibility is a defense mechanism. It's a defensive posture. It's seeking to protect your own interests, to protect your insecurities, to not allow people to really see who you are. Not opening yourself up and letting them see that you have weaknesses just like everyone else, and so we overcompensate. We become the survivor. We become the captain. We become inflexible. We become the one that's going to make sure my opinions and my perspectives matter to this group. And that's one way. The other way is the, the cast-off. We just drift. We disengage. We atrophy. Maybe somewhere in our lives we've been told, you're not clever enough, you're not smart enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not accomplished enough, and so you don't matter to this family, to this organization, to this group. And we're going to do our darndest to make sure that person is right. <laughs> We live out of that scar. We live out of that haunted past. We live out of that name that's been assigned to us. And we say, I will disengage. I'm not going to be hurt again. I'm not going to open myself up because I see what that leads to. The last time I did it, I got hurt. And I still am bearing the scars. And so we disengage. We stay aloof so that we won't get hurt. The passage says that this person hasn't ceased to be part of the body regardless of what they think they have. They haven't ceased to be part of the body, but the body suffers because every part is valuable. When one part of the body says, I'm going to disengage, I'm not going to be a part, I'm just going to drift around the edges, the whole body suffers, not just you as an individual Christian. Now, sometimes in a church, or in any organization for that matter, we have to scratch below the surface in order to find that. Because often, often communities, and Christian communities are especially good at this, we have a superficial unity which masks a deeper separateness, a deeper disunity. You've, you've probably encountered these churches where everyone is very nice. 
Everyone greets you at the door. Everyone escorts you to the place you need to be. And there's no conflict. There's no disagreement. Everyone has just got a smile on. Everyone's dressed well. And it seems like, wow, this is a wonderful place to be. I'd like to sign up here. But what's really happening a lot of times in those churches is that people aren't invested enough to where personal differences have to be dealt with. People don't actually love one another, so they're not willing to go through the messiness that is inherent to any true relationship and to dig it out and to deal with it. People don't care enough about the mission of the church to where they have to have conversation and say, how can we both have this strong passion but yet get it going in the same direction? People don't care enough about genuine unity. This church often looks very busy, but it's not unified. It looks unified on the outside, but once you get in, you see everyone's just going in, the diff- in a different direction. Everyone has their own little piece of the pie, and they're allowed to do that, and so there's no conflict. No one cares enough about the larger unity, the larger mission, in order to have to work together. Now, what's the corrective? What's the solution to this? It's not, first of all, the body intervening to the body part and saying, look, get with the program. Don't you understand that the team is so much more important than your own individual part? There may be cause for that at some level, but that's not what Paul does here. Instead, what he sees as central is getting each body part to believe something about themselves and about their place in Jesus' mission. In verse 18, he says, But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just the way he wanted them to be. God made you exactly like he wanted, carefully and creatively and lovingly. And no matter what your past scars are, no matter what haunts you, no matter how you have failed, no matter your disability, no matter your ignorance, You are indispensable to Jesus and his church. And the church is indispensable to you and your health and your spiritual prosperity. You see, community with sameness is a counterfeit community. It's unity without diversity. And it doesn't allow, it doesn't foster individuals to become everything that God has made them to be. And this church is no more a church than is a a piece of music that plays middle C over and over is a symphony. Uniqueness, the uniqueness and beauty of middle C becomes apparent when it's utilized in a piece of music with dozens of other notes that are arranged beautifully, arranged in harmony, arranged in such a way that when you hear middle C, it sounds different and it sounds beautiful. Middle C comes alive. But if you just play middle C over and over, it's the same, it's unified, but it's not diverse, and it's not beautiful, and it's not effective. It becomes beautiful and meaningful when it takes its its place alongside other notes. Now, there are only 88 keys on the piano, right? So there is unity. There is some level of uniformity that is required to make beautiful music. You can't be anywhere There is uniformity, but we can't require, we can't press people beyond the uniformity that is laid out in Scripture. This is not Christianity, it's not the gospel, it's more authoritarian. In order to be one of us, you have to dress like us, you have to look like us, 
You have to read what we read. You have to reject what we reject. You have to be angry about what we're angry about. No, no, no. The authentic church creates tremendous diversity and maturity in the Christian life is learning to grow up in the midst of that diversity, learning to grow comfortable between middle C and B, (laughs) learning to know that that distinction is valuable and beautiful and meaningful and not try to conform the other person to you, not to try to get that note to play like you play. Now, unlike the church above that we talked about that had uh, an apparent, an ostensible unity, but an undergirding disunity, this church, that is the sameness church, the community without distinction, their immediate description might relate to their individual passion. It might be that we are a mercy church. We are a compassion church. We are a discipleship church. We do this very well. We have great music. And when you meet those people initially, you think, well, everyone's going in, the different, in a different direction. But you see, what that church allows the person to do is to thrive in their diversity, to thrive in the midst of being different, to thrive in their passion, to say, yes, go for it. But then they understand how their passion, how their particular interests, how their giftedness fits into the larger church. If a church is in union with Jesus and his mission. It can be very passionate about a variety of things, but yet it all fits together because there's a diversity of gifts, but there's one source. There's a diversity of calling, but there's one overarching mission. Now, in the beginning, I said that we can't fully flourish as a human. We can't reach the full potential that God has designed us to. We can't mature as a Christian without a deep, an abiding connection with the church because it's Jesus' body. When you're connected with the church, in a real way, you are connecting and connected with Jesus. You're made for community. What good is a foot without a body? What good is an ear without some, to help someone listen to something? And not, not only do every one of you have an indispensable contribution What this says is you're also personally valuable to him. God doesn't love you because he has to, but because you're his, because you're part of his body, because he loves you. He's quite fond of you. He likes you a lot. He says you are lovely. You are valuable to me, even when your little contribution to the church doesn't seem to add much value. Now that's part of the corrective to disqualifying ourselves. But we also do this with others. We say the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. This is another disruption in the unity and the diversity of the church, another disruption to the one and the many. But notice that Paul has shifted the focus from us disqualifying ourselves, us disengaging ourselves to disqualifying other people. We disqualify others In fact, we disqualify the entire church by saying, I don't need you. I'm fine on my own. I can be self-sufficient. I can make it. I can do it. I've overcome. And so, therefore, we keep people at arm's length. I can be spiritual. I can be mature. I can thrive on my own. Now, we said the other one was a counterfeit community, 
because there is unity without diversity. There is sameness. It's not a real, authentic, gospel-centered church. But here we have counterfeit individuality. It's diversity without unity. It's everyone is different, but there's nothing that binds them together. The individual is saying, I will come when I want, I will show up if I want, and I'll disengage when I want, I will do what I want, because I can thrive on my own. I'm fine without you. It's a diversity without unity. It's uh, without a vital connection to community. Now, think for me, if you will, about the atom. Now, when I ministered in Palo Alto, I could never share these scientific illustrations because there was, in a church of 150 people, there was like eight physics PhDs, and I could just see them like, show, you know, looking in confusion, and it would always throw me off. But I'm going to try here because I think this works. The number of protons and neutrons in an atom are, are fixed. They're stable. They have the same number because they're, they're very strongly attracted to one another and they have a a repulsion against other neutrons and other protons. And so it can't be modified without the application of a huge amount of energy. You can't add a neutron into the nucleus of an atom without nuclear fusion, without a powerful amount of energy. At the core of the sun, protons require energy, energies of 3 to 10 kilo electron volts. Now, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like a lot in order to overcome their mutual repulsion, to be joined together, what's called the column barrier. There has to be a massive amount of energy to join that neutron and grow that nucleus to where the nucleus becomes more substantial. It becomes larger. It becomes heavier. And in that process, energy develops. But it takes an outside energy, an outside force, to overcome that that repulsion barrier and to join that proton or that neutron to the atom. Now, what is this force? For nuclear energy, it's electricity. But what brings you out of repulsion to community? What brings you out of spiritual isolation? What brings you out of spiritual dislocation and unites you to the church and makes that church more significant, more beautiful, more able to do its work? It takes tremendous power because we're fine on our own. Before we come to Jesus, we're protons just wandering around. We're fine. I don't want to be joined because I know what that means. It means I've got to give up myself. I've got to give up my rights. I've got to give up some of my individuality in order to be joined to the church. When a, when a neutron or proton joins the nucleus, it becomes a different chemical element. It becomes something different entirely. And when you are joined to the church, when you are joined to the nucleus, the new nucleus, you become something entirely different. You don't give up your individuality, your personhood, but you are joined to a community. You are joined, in fact, to Jesus. What is that power? What overcomes that mutual repulsion? Well, Paul begins, he says, for we are all baptized into one body. You, when you're baptized, when you are joined to Jesus by faith, you go from being one element to another element entirely. You go from being one isolated individual to a member of Christ's body, to a member of his community, and it's unalterable. It is eternal. That joining takes a great deal of power, 
but it makes it eternal. It makes it stick. Now, maybe your personal narrative has been one of great success. You've accomplished, bar- uh, accomplished things. You have busted through barriers. You've been successful. You've achieved what you've wanted to achieve. You've been able to go it on your own. And so when you enter into the church, that personal narrative becomes in conflict with the way that you go about being a Christian in the body of Christ. Because you're used to saying, I can do it. Used to saying, there's a barrier, I will tackle it. I will knock it down. I will take care of it. And you have a hard time understanding why other people can't do the exact same things that you can. We call this pride. And it leads you to disqualify other people. To say, why can't they be like me? They need to get with the program. But baptism says, no, no, no. You got here the same way that everyone else gets in. You got here to the church. You were united to Jesus in the exact same way that everyone else was, and that is by his grace alone. Nothing you did could earn your place at the table. Nothing that you did could merit your membership in the body of Christ. Jesus alone reached out to you and said, though you think you can do it on your own, you can't. Let me draw you in. Let me unite you, let me unite you to me, to my body. He reached out to you and gave you, gave you grace. Baptism and the gospel that it inculcates, that it captures, that it promotes, is the great equalizer because it says everyone got in by grace, not by strength. Others of us may have a personal narrative that's much more despairing. We've been dealt a bad deck of cards, or so we think. We've had tremendous failure. We've had tremendous difficulty. We've had tremendous illness. We've been hurt by being a part of a community in the past. And so we come into the community thinking, I can't do it. I wish I could be like that person. That person seems to have it all together. And so we envy their giftedness. We wish we could have a more public. We wish we could have a more powerful. We wish we could really change something. And what we do in that is we disqualify ourselves because we're despairing, because we envy other people. And again, friends, whatever difficulties you've had, whatever failures Whatever scars haunt you from your past, Jesus says, come to me. Be baptized into my body. Come and be a member of my church eternally. I will make you clean. I will make you meaningful. I will make you beautiful. No matter what your past is, no matter what your story is, I will welcome you. Come to me. Be baptized into my body. That's the power that we need. That's the centering power both for pride or despair, for the personal narrative of great success, great overcoming power, or just, I just can't make it. The centering power that we need is, the, is what's represented in baptism. It's the gospel. It's that Jesus has entered into your life and he has set you free eternally. He has made you something special, something beautiful. And we need to remember in conclusion that both of these, and you've heard me use this before, the pride and despair are both symptoms. They're not the root. We need to see the reason that we're prideful, the reason that we're despairing is something far more fundamental, and that is we are insecure. We don't know who we are. We don't know what our center is. 
We put something else besides Jesus at the center of our lives, and when it fails, we're insecure, we're despondent, we're envious of other people. Because why can't I be like them? Why can't I overcome? Why can't I be happy like them? We've put something else at our center. But when it succeeds, we're proud and we're arrogant. Look what I've done. Christian, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, what we need to do is we need to repent. We need to repent and believe the gospel again to remember your baptism. Remember what's represented Paul says you are all baptized into one body. You're deeply sinful and yet deeply loved. When you succeed, when you do something great, when you see your gift at work in the church, you're able to celebrate that. You're able to worship. You're able to be thankful and say, look what Jesus has done through me, through this broken vessel, through this jar of clay. Look what Jesus has done. We're able to worship. When we fail, when we blow it, when we are found out to be a fraud in some way, we're able to say, you know what, you're right. And I'm a whole lot worse than that. But Jesus has made me clean. Jesus has made me righteous. Repent and believe the gospel again. Repent and remember your baptism. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus... Maybe your pendulum swings daily between those two poles of pride or despair. Maybe you're just stuck in one. What you need is not a self-help book. It's not ten steps to a better life. You need the power of Jesus, the power of baptism. You need the identity, the stable, secure foundation that is found in the gospel. You need to be made into an entirely different element, not just add things on. You need to be made new. Let Jesus bring you out of your spiritual isolation into the church. It'll be messy. You might get hurt. There'll be people here that you don't really like, but it'll be beautiful. It's the way that you flourish because that's the only way to be connected with Jesus, to, con- to connect through baptism. Believe the gospel and come in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would encourage us as your people, encourage us to walk with greater unity, to be comfortable in our diversity, to be comfortable with people that are very different from us. Father, help us to be loving people, that we don't avoid conflict, that we deal with conflict in a loving way, with truth and grace. Father, if there are those here that are still wondering, still questioning, I pray that you would speak to us as well, speak to our unbelief, speak to the ways that we keep you at arm's length because we don't really want to let you in. We don't really want to let you be Lord and King of our lives. Father, we pray that you would work where each of us are this morning and change us from the inside out. Approach us in the gospel and meet us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.